The following transmission contains unencrypted instances of explicit language. Mature audiences are cleared to proceed. Shall we begin? The original version of Disney's Lilo and Stitch featured the main characters hijacking a 747 and crashing it into buildings in a major metropolis. It's one of the major examples of a movie needing to be drastically changed in response to the events of September 11, 2001. Spy Game didn't feature any airplanes, but it does feature a terrorist bombing that is central to its plot. When we wonder how a big-budget film headlined by Robert Redford and Brad Pitt failed to succeed with audiences, we have to wonder if it was at least partially due to being released just one month after the events of 9-11. I'm Todd. And I'm Dave, and we like to talk about spy movies. Spy Game may have failed at the box office, but it succeeds wildly in giving us a lot of tradecraft to dissect, and that's what we're going to do in this episode of Spies Like Us. That was perfect, except uh, it's Lilo and Stitch. Yeah, I'm not fixing that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, uh, Spy Game. It's a 2001 film portraying events in 1991 with U.S.-China trade negotiations happening in the background. Kind of an important plot point. Uh, A lot of the film is done in flashbacks. Uh, we got 1975 in Vietnam, sometime later in Germany, and 1985 in Beirut are our flashbacks. Uh, the principal agency portrayed in this film is the CIA. Uh, we also get some appearances from Vopo. I'm not sure exactly if you're supposed to say it that way, but the VOPO is uh, the East German Police uh, from the end of the war to up until 1990. So if they were to show up in this film in real time, that would be incorrect. But since they show up in the, in the, the Germany flashback part, it's totally appropriate. And we also get some very minor appearances from the PLO and the KGB. Uh, Tony Scott directs, that is Ridley Scott's brother, who I did not know this about him until doing the research for this. Uh, he directed True Romance. What? Yeah. Wow. Sorry to cut you off. I, I didn't know that. I, I just found that out. That's awesome. Here's, 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 another, here's another weird one, I think. Top Gun, which I think is, I really think is one of the best movies of all time. I fucking love Top Gun. <laughs> For some, I think I always thought Top Gun was a Michael Mann movie. If that does that make sense to you, or do you, do you a little bit? My, yeah, I, I was a little young during those times, so I was okay. just like, "Yeah, airplanes." <laughs> oh, it's it holds up so good. I think uh, he yeah. also did Crimson Tide and Enemy of the State, and he was one of the producers of the Company miniseries that that we like. Oh well. Not exactly a lightweight. No, 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 no. Uh, but uh, he's no Ridley. Except, I don't know, dude, Top, <laughs> Top Gun, though? Top, I'm surprised. Top Gun is... He seems like he was really, like, batting way outside of his weight class on that one. And, yeah. su- and succeeding like crazy. Right. 
I loved um, Enemy of the State, but you know I'm a big conspiracy I guy. I haven't seen that one yet. Really? Like, oh, it's really good. But Daniel wants us to do that one. We'll put it up there soon. Um, it's a uh, Robert Redford and Brad Pitt vehicle. Uh, Brad Pitt passed on playing the title role, passed on Jason Bourne for this project. I didn't even know he was ever even in, in consideration on that one. Yeah, I think uh, we brought that up when we did Bourne. Oh, I don't think so. I, I, I think this came as a total surprise to me. Oh, really? Uh, maybe, maybe that's just fuzzy memory on my part. I gotta say, I mean, I'm not sure there's you can be a bigger Brad Pitt fan than I am, you know, <laughs> without like actually having posters of him in your bedroom. But I, I can't. I don't. I, I'm, I'm happy he didn't do Born. I don't think. I don't see it. I mean, I feel like Brad Pitt can do anything, but for some reason, I, I just, I'm not feeling that one. Maybe it's just because I like Matt Damon in that role so much. Yeah. Right? Um, and his reason... So, I mean, maybe he passed on it because he's maybe saw the same thing I'm seeing. That, like, you know, this is not exactly a perfect Brad Pitt type of role. But uh, it also very well could have been just because he wanted to do this movie so badly. And the reason he wanted to do this movie so badly was to work with Robert Redford, who uh, uh, they were friends. Um, and uh, Well, that's interesting because I know you brought up multiple times that you see Robert Redford and Brad Pitt and that he probably studied him a lot. That is, that is how I feel. And I, I, yeah, I have mentioned that a bunch of times and I think like I was even talking about that in when we did sneakers and, you know, Brad Pitt wasn't even like, you know, he's not even involved in that movie. Uh, but I really feel it here. I just, they, they definitely don't have the same voice, but there's something about their physicality and their acting decisions. Just, I would not be surprised if, if I were to find out that Brad Pitt, uh, had like heavily studied, Robert Redford specifically in training himself as an actor. But right. w when I Googled it, all I could find is a whole bunch of people talking about how much they look alike. Like a lot of people just think they're basically twins. I don't see that as much as everyone else. Yeah, no, I don't see that. But when you pointed out a lot of the mannerisms, I was like, Oh yeah, I didn't notice that. They both uh, they both can definitely like pour on the charm in a very in a very kind of similar way. Uh, overall, and it's no knock on Redford, but you know I think Brad Pitt's got like a bit more range. You know he can do some things that I don't think Redford can um, <laughs> as well. And also Brad Pitt, you know, also in addition to being like such a great uh, leading man kind of actor. You know, he also does really good character work, like in yeah. 12 Monkeys and Burn Before Reading and stuff like that. After. And burn After Reading, right. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're going to do say, I was just going to say, I, I don't think Redford could do Burn After Reading. That creepy <laughs> smile in the closet, I, I don't see a Redford smile with that. Uh, yeah. yeah, he's, yeah, he, he's, he's, uh, he's just got the thing. 
Um, trivia, maybe. Uh, you know, Bishop. Okay, so Brad Pitt's uh, name. It's his name, right? Not not his cover name. It's his name. His last name is Bishop. Right. It's Tom Bishop. Book. Right, right, right. And uh, that was Redford's alias in Sneakers. Remember? Yep. And that in itself was like an Easter egg from Three, Day, Three Days of the Condor, in which the last two names on a casualty list that's seen in the movie of a bombed CIA building were Martin and Bishop. And then Martin Bishop is what Redford goes by in Sneakers. Oh. So, yeah. Easter egg time on that one. Uh, speaking of Three Days of the Condor, real quick, too, uh, which I haven't seen yet. Uh, I am really excited to get around to it, though, because I've heard great things. Um, it has, like, Spy Games been described by a few people as a very neat companion piece to Three Days of the Condor, which is way back from 1975, because in that film, Redford plays a very young uh, CIA analyst who's like has to like be forced into being an actual spy kind of thing by mm -hmm. like you know a crazy situation. So it's kind of neat to have the two movies where in one he's a pure like CIA neophyte, and then have this one. 26 years later where he's playing, uh, you know, a super veteran weathered spy that's at the end of his career. Yeah. We, we definitely have that on our list. So we gotta, we gotta get to that at some point. I wish we could do all the movies at once, but right. we can't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's the setup for the movie. It is, Time for the briefing room where we will go in and tear apart the tradecraft, good and bad. Retinal scan complete. Validating security clearance. Clearance granted. You may now enter the briefing room. So, uh, yeah, like uh, uh, several uh, other movies, it, it, it doesn't come up in all spy movies, but in a fair amount of them where uh, we got... Like I said, a lot of this movie is told in flashback. You get the main story that's happening current day, 1991, and a series of flashbacks uh, while, like, basically some CIA executives are grilling uh, the Robert Redford character, who is Nathan Muir. Um, he's being asked to basically describe uh, the history of his relationship with Nathan Bishop. Sorry, no, Tom Bishop. Tom Bishop. Tom Bishop, yeah. who is uh, played by Brad Pitt. So, uh, and interestingly, too, I, I saw one reviewer say that, like, the, the three flashback sequences, they all kind of could be considered as, like, short mo like uh, short films in their own right, mm -hmm. which I thought was actually very apt and, and correct. Um, but what we're what we're gonna do since everything that's happening in the main story all centers around what's going on in 1991, but all that is predicated on everything that's happened in the past. We're gonna take this podcast basically like in chronological order. We'll get you all caught up with uh, the past events, and it all starts with the where uh, Nathan Muir and Tom Bishop first met in Vietnam, 1975. Yeah, 
Mir lands in Vietnam to assassinate um, like a very significant Laotian general, and he 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 needs to get an army sniper to kind of pull it off. And that's when we first meet Bishop. Well, not in the film, but uh, when he's describing his relationship with Bishop, this is the very first meeting. Um, they they he he meets him in a camp, and one of the things I really liked about this first meeting is the first time he sees him. Uh, it's it's Bishop and this Vietnamese guy, I'm presuming, um, and they're just completely separated from the the rest of the platoon, I guess. And they're eating Vietnamese food, and the the command one of the commanding officers is just like, yeah, it smells terrible if you ask me. And then Redford's statement is not to the enemy. So first off, plus spy points on on that was. Uh, because, you know, there's a whole thing where uh, people can smell, like, what you eat kind of thing. And for, for a spy, uh, I, I liked this because Redford already tracked them as someone that knows how to uh, blend in, so to speak. Takes his um, job very seriously. Takes it, takes and he, it, and it takes it dead serious. Takes it to the utmost level, yeah. The details. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, throughout the... You know, even with his interview with Bishop and also the way that this uh, sniper assassination operation goes down, um, Bishop does, like, uh, evidence or showcase all the elements that Mir would look for in a recruit for the CIA. Uh, mm-hmm. He's very patriotic. He volunteered, uh, which which is something that uh, Mir definitely notes. Uh, he's got massive dedication to the job, and he's super steady under fire. And yeah, he was like a machine when he first met him. It looked like you know, a <laughs> typical idea of like a, a Hollywood soldier, I guess. They're just a machine, you know. Hoorah! Well, this army, never mind. Sorry. Uh, it look, but it does look like the dates were a little wrong. Uh, yeah, I, I did. I did note that in the movie. The uh, let's see, it's. Mm, yeah, it's like, hey, oh, I think it's, I think they say it's April of 1975 specifically. And that was when, that was like the army had actually pulled out, like, I think a whole year earlier, like almost mm-hmm. all of the U.S. troops were mm-hmm. gone. And April 1975 was when the, that, you know, that famous shot of the helicopter taking the last few people out of the embassy that was just right. like a hand, a handful of American stragglers, you know, that were sitting in Saigon. So it does seem weird. I mean, you know, we don't have to super quibble on it. It doesn't pertain yeah. to, the, <laughs> right. to the spyness of the movie. But it also just seems to be like a total unforced error. Like, uh, you know, they could have just said this was 1974. <laughs> yeah. Made Unless sense. this is kind of like aftermath covert stuff. And yeah, yeah. I, I, were they in Laos pulling off this sniper job? Or I mean, yeah. it seems like they were in the middle of the war, just from the way they were talking. So, yeah, it does kind of seem kind of weird. Well, I liked I liked the fact the target is La- Laotian. Uh, they actually filmed it in Morocco, uh, which is why it doesn't <laughs> really look like Vietnam if you pay super close attention, right? Um, but uh, yeah, Laos was. Uh, See, I think, like, I wondered, like, well, why is the CIA even involved in this, right? Like, this seems like it could have just been an army mission that was just handed off, 
like why does he need to get directly involved and what i think is going on is i think the operation does is supposed to go off in laos because uh laos was like an un unofficial theater of war but a lot of covert operations went down there on on both sides yeah redford mentioned he was working on the phoenix project which is actually a very famous op um uh, if you read Col- William Colby's book, Honorable Men, which is a fantastic book, by the way, if you're a f- fanboy like I am, uh, uh, according to Colby, the Phoenix Project was teaching rural areas uh, to farm and make money so that they were financially secure so that they couldn't be recruited by the Viet Cong. If you've talked to Vietnam vets like I have, uh, they'll tell you it was an assassination squad operation. Oh, really? Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> so I'm I, I'm sure there's a little bit of truth to uh, a lot of, you know, I'm sure it was uh, a plan to help areas like farm and stuff, but I'm sure that also could have been a nice cover for some assassination squads. So, uh, but uh, a lot of that came out during, uh, after uh, Watergate, when Colby had to... Um, testify before Congress. I think that's so. a real, I think that's a really nice bit of historical accuracy there. Uh, might be a good time to just point out though, that even though like the movie like travels through like, like these different periods of time and they all seem to be pretty consistent with like historical events that were going on at the time. Uh, none of the actual people in the movie are uh, like historical. This isn't, this isn't like Argo. Where, yeah. where they're trying to tell a story of something that actually happened. It's definitely like a piece of pure fiction just with historical settings. So like, for instance, the this target, this Laotian general or whatever, like, which I think they give him a name or something, but it's, it's just a made up name. It's not a real dude. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any real historical. I mean, it, it, it's probably historical in the fiction, quote unquote, I mm-hmm. guess. <laughs> um, the rec- I mean, Bishop's recruitment was actually kind of interesting because after that op, you know, this we get a big Hollywood scene where you know he's a sniper with his spotter buddy and he can't pull off the shot. He pulls off the shot at a very like like it through the skin of his teeth, and then the helicopter spots them. They have to run away. His buddy gets shot. He picks him up like a Boy Scout, and then he takes an AK and shoots at the helicopter gas tank, I guess, which makes the helicopter crash and we have a huge explosion. But uh, following that, um, Bishop actually, like, uh, you know, pulls some strings and and gets uh, Bishop assigned to, uh, like, some really shit desk job in, in Germany. And he's, like, watching him the whole time. And I think he said in the movie, when I thought he couldn't take it anymore... I decided to make my move and it was actually a cute little uh, where he's got one of his cover wives and he comes off the train and Bishop recognizes Muir and, and it was really Bishop trying to set up that meeting. And that's when we get the, that's when we get the nice pitch to join the agency. Uh, Says you'd be, you know, CIA will train you. You'd be reporting to me. And then they proceed into uh, a, a really good, training sequence i think i mean we've had we've seen these before in a few movies uh pretty pretty quick mm, i don't want to say slapdash but like it just really felt like the movie just wanted to like 
get you through the the idea this person had been trained with like right. like a, a very quick montage but i appreciated very much the the training sequences and scenes that that we get here um yeah i completely agree uh you know i think i've said to you a few times that something that bugs me in most spy stories it's always like a training movie or it's always like a mole movie uh but this i really liked because as they're cutting back and forth between the past and the present um you're watching bishop learn and and it and like you just pointed out it's not just a montage even though i do like some of those montages because they give you cute little like trade crafty tips but this one it seemed more drawn out like it was developed well like it was nice to watch I, i liked it I liked it. Um, I like how, you know, I, I like how Mirror uh, tells Bishop, you know, sometimes, you know, just just for for one thing, you can keep it simple. Like a lot of times all you need is a stick of gum, a pocket knife and a smile. Right. <laughs> and, and the stick of gum <laughs> is something that uh, Bishop's actually going to use uh, later in his career. So that's a nice little nice little call out here. But um a lot of it goes to, well, you know, we see him getting trained to beat polygraphs, which is cool. And the oh, don't ch- forget the cigarettes and lighter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're always seeing that's That's a great icebreaker, right? You see right, that, right. You see that in spy, spies are always like, you know, come, even sometimes that's their, uh, that's their code phrase or something. Or it's, a, it's an excuse yeah. for, a, for a brush past. What do we call that? Right, yeah. You know, it's, it's just, I don't want to look like I know who you are. I'm just a random stranger on the street that has, that lost his lighter. You right. Know? It's a, it's <laughs> and a nice it definitely thing. comes up later. So it's definitely want to point out the cigarettes and lighter. Uh, the main thing though is, you know, like the, the observation training mm-hmm. that, that Muir gives Bishop uh and specifically about like how to watch reflections and just like the constant sit rep awareness of like everything that's going on around you uh mm-hmm. you know with your ears open your eyes open picking up every detail and and training yourself to do that until it's totally second nature and that you're just doing it without even having to think about it is uh-huh. is nice you know and i mean you, you see that in a lot of movies, but in this movie in particular, when we get to present day, when Muir, where Muir is and his uh, operations in the office at Langley are the main like part of the story, like you can really see and fucking believe that Muir knows what he's talking about because he uses the shit out of that, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Next up is Berlin, uh, an operation that occurs sometime between 1976 and 1985. Not sure that the movie specified that. This is uh, this is our, our next flashback, which again, the flashbacks are kind of spaced out throughout the movie, but we wanted to get you through the chronological uh, situation. So we basically got like Bishop, he's, he's now, he's trained, or at least he's, he's, trained up enough to be uh, doing some actual field work, right? Right. And I, and I think at this point, uh, 
he's getting an agent out of East Berlin into West Berlin. Mm-hmm. So I think that's like really his only job at this point. Like he's he's the wheel man. He's the he's the final point of contact. Everything else has probably been set up by Redford, by right. by Muir. Um, they call it uh, Operation Rodeo. It's sort of a double op sort of thing. Uh, because what we're gonna find out, like the real reason they're trying to get this guy out of Berlin is to expose Anne Cathcart, who is a diplomat of some kind. She's, she's involved in their, their Berlin embassy. And well, I don't think it was part of the op to suss her out. I, I, I think she was just the mole that he talked about in the meeting that it turned out there was a mole and that's uh, how we spotted it was her at that party and that's when Redford realized the the op is is a no go, and they had yeah, and they had to basically get rid of Schmidt, who was the guy they were bringing across. Okay, well let's. I mean, let's walk through like what happens, which is pretty straightforward. Right. Uh, and then and then you tell me because I'm a little confused by it. Uh, basically, Muir is has made all the arrangements to have Bishop pick up Schmidt and get him across safely across the Iron Curtain and safe to Munich. While Bishop is doing this, Muir is at a party at the embassy and Anne Cathcart is like kind of flirting around with him, you know, it looks like they've known each other for a long time. Um, she, uh, she's kind of trying to get sweet with him, trying to flirt, flirt around with him. But he says like, let's go outside. Yeah. He's like, he's like, no, I'm working. And, uh, she like plainly asks him, you know, leans in with a whisper and says like, are you bringing someone across? And he just gives (laughs) her a look. And then she kind of seems to acknowledge that and then walks away. And then when Muir gets to the phone, a prearranged phone call uh, with Bishop, he says, okay, you got to dump Schmidt. You got to dump him. Right. This is fucked. The, the plan, it's, it's over. Later, Bishop's going to get really mad at Muir about dumping Schmidt. You know, he's going to be like, you know, I could have got him across. We, we were okay. And Mirror's like, nope, the thing was busted. And also, by the way, don't question my orders anymore because this wasn't about Schmidt. This was about exposing Anne Cathcart. It doesn't super fly for me because, number one, okay, minus five points, I think, for Cathcart just plainly asking Muir, are you bringing someone across? And then, and then walking away, like, you know, it, that just seems like really suspicious activity. Yeah. And then... When Muir gets on the phone with Bishop just like a minute later, somehow that interaction with Cathcart seems to have been like the reason that he says we got to burn Schmidt. Mm-hmm. But the the Popo were already on top of Schmidt. Like they were already in pursuit. So I don't see what any of the interaction with Cathcart had to do with actually exposing her as a mole. Like, I would call this chicken feed. It looks like spy stuff, but it's kind of not. 
under scrutiny. I think we're. I think this is more just character building for Bishop. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like his first real getting his feet wet, and he's supposed to bring a guy across the border, and then he has to kick the guy out, and now he's really pissed because they used him, and he's probably going to get murdered. And Bishop, see, and this is the best. The Bishop's response is like, first of all, that guy Schmidt went to the Russians. You don't know who's playing who. Oh, right. Yeah, don't, yeah. Don't ever drop, you know, don't ever lower your, uh, don't ever do anything for an asset. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, always just be willing to cut them off at a moment's notice and also fucking obey orders because you don't know everything that I'm doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, 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 yeah, so a lot of this kind of happened fast. So I think this is more character building for Bishop that he's starting to learn what the the life is in in Spycraft. Um, but I mean, I still really enjoyed watching it, and I thought I thought it was kind of cool. I mean, specifically when he's got Schmidt in the car, there's a nice little trade off to get Schmidt in the car, and then he's driving, and then he's being followed, and how he shakes him is he tells Schmidt. Take a drink of this vodka in the glove compartment and pour it on your shirt. We're supposed to be drunk. And then uh, Bishop runs out of the car, like parks the car onto the curb in front of like a pub, jumps in the pub. The 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 bartender obviously knows him because he's like signaling him they're coming. Right, yeah, they pre-planned this for sure. So, yeah, that's, that's what I really wanted to point out is uh, major plus spy points. In fact, this is getting my best tradecraft number three. Um the, you know, I, I, from what I've been reading and seeing in, in a lot of tradecraft stuff is um, the, you got to have like checkpoints. Like the, it's kind of like counter surveillance ideas is having these checkpoints. And so he he had a contact at this bar and uh, the bartender tells him, yo, they're coming. The They come in and they're like, where is he? And then he goes in the bathroom and he like just chugs like this little vial that makes him like Ralph immediately all over a urinal. Mm-hmm. The, the guy's oh, yeah. tailing him, walk in, and he's like, oh, okay. And he just walks out and tells his partner, it's just a couple of drunks, and he just slams like uh, Bishop against the car. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely making this my number three best tradecraft because I thought that was a really good way to shake a tail. Like, and, and from what I've, like read and heard about counter surveillance having having checkpoints are, is really important so that checkpoint specifically was meant to make a call their cover for stopping there was just being drunk and having to throw up you know so i just love i just love the little detail of him just like driving up over the corner curb and jumping out of the car and and telling schmidt to pour vodka on him and take a big swig yeah, it's I, great. I really it's, it. it's it's great. He's yeah. he's not just thinking on his feet. Like he's he's kind of because I mean he has that little minor toxin in his pocket. So like he's right. you know he's immediately thought of like what we're gonna do if problems arise. Right, and, and so I really like that. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm yeah, me too. Pointing that out. So, but, but yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, but uh, you know, eventually, like. At the phone call, this is where Redford tells him that everything's blown and dumped Schmidt. And like we were talking about how this really affected Bishop. Um, it's basically, uh, it's a whole setup to get the situation of the the scene on the tower, like afterwards, where Muir 
is dressing Bishop down for even questioning him for for a second. You know, I think he even says like, you know, the seven seconds that we were <laughs> arguing about it could have been right. the difference between life and death. Yeah, and, and he says, I think, yeah, Bishop's like, fuck your rules, man. And, and Muir's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But those rules saved your life today. Yeah. So. Right. And he says, you know, <laughs> it, and this is the other thing, the 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 little rule that he's going to totally break and is like kind of the point of the movie. He says, you know, if you ever go off the reservation, I'm not going to come after you. Right. Um, and the tower scene, by the way, I really dug. Uh, you know, like the the they used helicopter shots around it to give like really to kind of like uh, visually give this whole like idea of uh, Bishop's world getting kind of whirled around, you know, in his head of what's right, going on. Yeah. Like it really added so much emotion to it. And uh, what I found out, just movie making trivia, uh, the the at this point, uh, Tony Scott had already burned all of his budget. Uh, the movie did go over budget like by quite a bit, um, but he wanted these shots so bad that he used his own personal helicopter. Oh, he did. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, and and I saw too that uh, Robert Redford was confused said he was he was confused and he didn't understand like why they needed the helicopter shots but that like when he saw the end result he was like oh yeah fuck yeah this is great yeah it's one of the key <laughs> it's one of the key scenes in the film right yeah i i think it, that's what i say I, I think berlin was more about building uh bishop and redford's relationship as well as their personal characters and you know the three flashbacks do kind of all function together pretty well in that like in the first one like their partnership seems to just be fine like like it's yeah. like it's like the honeymoon phase <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then the second one you know the thing in germany uh was like it just kind of shows some cracks between the two characters a right. little bit a little bit of tension yeah. and but it's the third one in beirut where like we basically are gonna end in divorce right uh, and and see that we just we just you know, we're just oil and water, uh, but uh, not to skip too far ahead. But yeah, let's let's jump ahead and grab uh, Beirut, nineteen eighty five. So at this point, uh, they've been working together for like a solid ten years, right? And you also see that too, also in the flashbacks. You know, like you you see their uh, coordination is, I feel like, like appropriately more tight you know, in, in each of the three by 1985, you can see them, you, you, you can feel that they've got, uh, like a thing going, you know, they're, mm -hmm. they're in a partnership. Mm -hmm. So yeah, 1985, that's, uh, at this point, like a really long running civil war in Lebanon, uh, has been exacerbated by the involvement of Israel and the PLO. We're basically running a proxy war mm -hmm. in Lebanon. Um, at first, I couldn't figure out like which side was supposed to be backing the Lebanese government and who was supporting the pro-Syrian rebels. Either way, the U.S. is involved in this 
basically as part of a multinational force that's trying to end the involvement of both Israel and the PLO. Uh, because uh, like a ceasefire agreement was reached between those two powers in 1983. Like you're supposed to stop shooting each other. Right. But right. like, they're still like, they're still like running their like uh cold war bullshit, <laughs> you know, proxy war <laughs> over right. in neighboring Lebanon. And so yeah. this is like 1985. And, and this is like the CIA is getting involved because they're like, no, really, stop shooting at each other, <laughs> you know, or stop in, inciting other people to shoot at each other to, to prosecute your fucking disputes with each other. Right. Um, so the, the target in this one, it's another, this one's basically an assassination gig, right? Uh, yeah. The target's they're targeting, they're, they're targeting Salome. Uh, <clears throat> Which I, I think we both thought was the Red Prince, right? Um, from Munich. From Munich. That was that was our first thought, which was which I was like, "Woohoo, connection!" Right? Yeah. Uh, that was the guy Salome. Sal, the Red Prince Salome uh, was the founder of Black September, mm-hmm. and was supposedly involved in the the whole uh, nineteen seventy two Munich massacre that uh, that the movie Munich talks about. Right. Um, but a couple things, like I was noting some, some discrepancies, like, like that Muir identified him as Sheik Salome. And I was like, okay, Salome was not a Sheik. His father was, but he wasn't. Um, and then after looking at it a little bit more, I realized like, no, this is a, this is a separate dude. This is a fictional Salome. So just kind of using his name in there was kind of a, I don't know. I'm sure there's some fact in the fiction, though. Maybe. Just using a name like that, especially for the time period, there's there's probably a they're they're probably walking a line, maybe, to make it as fictional and realistic as possible. Yeah, I almost thought it was like almost maybe bordering on a little irresponsible to use that name because right. that that name has got some history behind it. Yeah, some some real history. The real Salome, like like uh, I think we said or or should have said, like was the founder of Black September, which is Black September was named after the basically Black September. Black September was named after the war that kind of incited this war that's going on in Lebanon. It was uh, it was the war from, from in what I from what I understand. Yeah, Black ahead. September was a terrorist organization that was like a revenge terrorist organization because some really shady shit happened uh involving superpowers and like smaller conflicts like we're talking about right now and and that that, that's why all of those terrorist actions by black september were taken on right this is what i got black september the terrorist organization was named after the blacks like a a very bad September, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> that was also known as Black September, and it was like a war in which the PLO fought and lost in Jordan, and the Jordanian king ended up kicking all the pro PLO people out into Lebanon, which is where they started the the Lebanese civil war. That is where we're at right now in 1985. Uh, okay. 
So that puts the PLO on the side of the rebels then. Right, yeah, and Israel supporting the Lebanese government. And supposedly the CIA is there to like kind of like get both of those people out, but you know, like in a if we ever had to I mean our government, not speaking for myself, but our government, if they ever had to make a choice between Israel and the PLO, you know, right. in a land. Yeah. <laughs> what were they taking Salome out for anyway? He was like an arms dealer or something? Um, no, they said he was, uh, they said he was involved in uh, the bombing of an embassy that killed a whole bunch of civilians. Oh, so this is a revenge kill. Yeah, I guess. I guess. Or it's stopping a further... Travis, like that in the future type of thing. Sure. Well, that's what we would say. <laughs> right. Now, Bishop's working in Beirut under uh, the cover of a photojournalist, which I initially wanted to flag that as minus spy points because I had heard that was one of the three covers the CIA is not supposed to use. But it got me thinking, this is... Back in 1985, I don't actually know when the rule came into play. And also, I only had one source on on that, which was the CIA lady who was head of um, chief of disguise for the CIA for some years. Uh, looking back on that, by the way, interesting tidbit. Uh, I noted that that was uh, that's Jonna Mendez. That's Tony Mendez's wife. The guy from oh Argo. really? Yeah, the guy from Argo. Always going for a circle. I, yeah, I dug into it some more, but the first thing I'm going to say is I went back and looked at exactly what she said, and, and this is a quote. She says, there are three covers that are basically off limits to CIA, and that would be religious figure, media figure, and Peace Corps. Uh, so there's that word basically that she used, and it also doesn't tell us uh, like when, if that is the policy, like when that policy came around. Right. But dug in on it some more. Your intuition had been correct. That initial thing kind of is attached to fallout from Watergate and the Family Jewels mm. report that was leaked. So it's uh, 73 that the Watergate scandal starts getting traction. And the current director, Schlesinger, of the CIA commissions the Family Jewels report. He just basically wants everyone in CIA to collect everything we maybe shouldn't have done. That's not consistent with our charter is what he said. Um, a year later, some of that stuff got leaked out. And a year after that is the church committee, which was a big uh, investigation by the Senate into CIA activities. They discussed a lot of things in that committee. But one thing was the use of journalists as CIA assets. Pretty much what they came to was a conclusion that uh, you should not do this. Uh, so, right. <laughs> um, and and kind of that's what they said. And that was uh, George Herbert, uh, Herbert Bush was, uh -huh. uh, was the director. Wait. Oh, yeah. Director of the CIA in 1976. I guess. Yeah, he took over after Colby. Okay, okay. So that so Colby wasn't around that long, was he? No, he was really just put up uh, after Watergate broke uh, by the he he pretty much protected the company from being like dismantled. Um, he was basically there to just 
deal with Congress and then resigned after. So I think he was specifically to, da- to damage uh, control, like all the stuff, right. all the all the stuff kind of fell in his lap. I think you said maybe before that maybe it was his uh, his background as a lawyer was why they tacked him for that. I think he was in the OSS, and after he left the OSS, he worked at a law firm, and then the CIA was established, and he was brought into the CIA. And because he had all that uh, law experience, especially with like, it was a pretty hefty law firm. So he he was able to kind of deal with the Senate. Um, that was a really good documentary about it. Uh, the man who knew, nobody knew, you know, because after Watergate broke, the director Schlesinger had to resign. Like, and then he was, Colby was put up specifically just to deal with Senate. And um, that's how a lot of the family jewel stuff type of came out. Okay. Like pretty much any operation we're aware of from the past that's like really shady and the foundation for a number of conspiracy theories um, came out of the Watergate scandal. The next director, after I guess Colby's done his cleanup work, George Herbert Bush, uh, gives the order, no more journalists. Um, but his replacement effectively like rescinded the order by saying like, that the CIA director could make the call in life or death situations to use a journalist. So, and then, you know, it's, he, they don't publicize like what a life or death situation is. So it kind of makes it toothless. Uh, it got, the issue got revisited in 96. Um, and at that point, they specifically talked about all three of the covers that Jana Mendez had said were verboten. Uh, journalists, clergy, and the Peace Corps. Um, the end result of that was again to be like to make it like a full stop. Like, really, no, don't do this, except by direct order by the president. But at the end, they actually snuck some language in at the very end that said it was also okay if the asset was voluntarily cooperating, which pretty much sucks all the teeth out of it. <laughs> right. <laughs> and. It looks like, and several senators actually said that that voted for this um, for this bill that they were con- they were confused by it or they didn't notice that last little sneak in and they thought they were outlawing the use of journalists and in fact what they actually did was kind of make it officially okay in in certain situations which you could really construe to be any situation. So, (laughs) so basically between 76 and 96, everyone thought journalists were completely off limits, but they really weren't. And now they're kind of really not, even though everyone seems, except certain people in the CIA seem to agree that they really should be. So that's where we are with that. Now, as far as he's not now in this case, Bishop isn't using an actual journalist as an asset. He's just using a cover. So that could slightly be a different situation, but it still runs into the core problem where like, if, if it's not a, it's not a question of like how many times or in what situations the CIA uses journalists or journalistic cover in their operations. It's how many times the enemy will suspect a journalist of working for the CIA. Right. It, it kind of like uh, puts other journalists in danger, especially if it's like something that's done a lot. So I, I guess I could kind of see it in an emergency situation. But if it's like 
that's the cover. And you see that kind of in a lot of uh, spy stories. And it probably was used overused too much that pretty much every journalist was suspected of being a spy. And that kind of puts them in danger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ditto for, again, clergy and Peace Corps. Did my research on this one and found something really interesting. The Peace Corps has one and only one automatic disqualification if you've ever worked for the CIA. That's pretty interesting. There's there's a lot of intelligence agencies, especially uh, after they made that happen. So why just the CIA? I don't know. Smiley is suspicious, Percy. It sounds like something happened and the Peace Corps is not having it ever again. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I'm not especially thrilled to see a CIA agent using any of these covers of journalists, clergy, or foreign aid worker, especially any time after 1976. But apparently the rules of this are at least somewhat in doubt. I think we're still going to call it minus spy points unless it's in a situation where it's of uh, like a national emergency that is so great that uh, the CIA director or the president himself would, would like overrule the, the basic guidelines. Uh, I'll tell you something I do like about his cover. Uh, in fact, I love is that he, he's running around Beirut. Uh, you know, he's a photo. I'm a journal. I'm a photojournalist. I'm not a spy. I'm a photojournalist. And he's wearing right. a he's wearing a fucking uh, San Diego Padres baseball cap. Right. That just clearly, <laughs> yeah, identifies himself as an American, like from a mile away. Right. Which I think is fucking great. And yeah. plus spy points because, you know, if no spy would do that. Right. No spy would just like look that, you know, proud to be proud to be an American. Although, well, I, I mean, mean, it's hiding in plain sight. He's standing out as obviously a journalist from America. That's why that's why it makes my number three best tradecraft in the movie. Okay. So you, you, you've made the decision. You've made the conscious decision. I'm going to wear a baseball cap. Unless maybe he's just such a super fan, he would wear it no matter what. <laughs> yeah, right. Like which, like what you call it, fucking Jack Nicholson in The Departed. Like, yeah. you know, he's supposed to be wearing, uh, like the script called him for him to be wearing a a, a baseball cap from Boston, the Red I, Sox, I, the Red Sox, right? But like apparently Jack Nicholson is such a fucking Yankees fan that he was like, fuck that. I'm wearing a Yankees cap. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, well, it's Jack Nicholson. What are you going to fucking do? Uh, But anyway, so no, but my question was uh, because, okay, like let's say somebody did start getting suspicious about you and looking (laughs) into your shit a little bit. Like, do you think that that having the baseball cap be from your actual hometown, is that good spy craft or bad spy craft? I mean, like they're going to go through San Diego first and there's a lot of, there's a lot of records and people to go through, but I mean, I agree with you. It's a little too close for comfort. Like he could have just, uh, he could have put on another hat. And then, and then just really quick, stupid pedantic trivia. Uh, 
1985, the Padres cap was brown, and in this movie, it's shown as blue. Oh, I love I am I love IMDb trivia so much. <laughs> <laughs> All right, back to the op. Right. Um, they 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 want to take out Salome. Right. They want him to appear to die of natural causes. This is important because they don't want anybody to know that any any fucking shenanigans happen. You know, uh, CIA is not supposed to be here. Uh, and he's he's got an appointment to see a doctor in Beirut, which is actually also kind of weird. Like, why does this guy like if he's got a medical condition? Uh, he wants to go see a doctor in like the most fucked up fucking place at the time. (laughs) Like, yeah, find another doctor or fly the doctor to you, you know, (laughs) fly him out to the Bahamas. But it's a, well, they're cousins, right? It's a family friend. Exactly. But still it would have made more sense for them. Like to, to, to get the guy out of Beirut. <laughs> right. <laughs> Especially in 1985. Um, but uh, so Bishop's on the case. He's sent in here in, 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 he's sent in here first. Unlike the Berlin operation, which felt like Robert Redford did all the groundwork. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. This is, this is a case where again, like, Bishop's skills, you know, 10 years later, 10 years into the game, you know, he's more advanced. You're going to send him in first. And then when he's got something, then he's going to call in his guy. He's going to call in Muir uh, when they're really ready to like seal the deal. But, uh, you know, he's, he's invested all of his time in, in, uh, you know, kind of embedding himself into the framework of this war, working as a photojournalist. I'm just trying to document what's going on. And uh, what he's got here, his angle, because what they're thinking is, okay, we want to get to Salome. Salome's going to be visiting this doctor. So we need to get to the doctor. How do we get to the doctor? Well... Uh, Bishop has uh, seen Hadley at the Commodore, which is apparently like a place where just a lot of um, uh, Arab expatriates or visitors to Beirut kind of congregate. And, you know, he manages to run into her at the, at the embassy where she's getting some pharmaceuticals and and then manages to also leverage that into like a chance meeting supposedly uh you know at a camp where she's doing some aid work and and that's how he kind of like gets a line in on on meeting the doctor right yeah once he meets the doctor and the doctor seems like you know just a fantastic human being uh that just, just wants to help kids and stay safe and yeah, just working overtime trying to mitigate the absolute horror that this war is inflicting on civilians and kids. Yeah. <laughs> like you say. And um, you know, there's some huge I just fucking great plus five points. Uh could have could have made my could have made my best list. It was definitely a contender. Is that uh Bishop does like a piece on the doctor for the New York Times. 
which talk about stroking your ego. Right. Of your asset, right? Major plus buy points on that one. Yeah. Totally, totally. Like he shows him, like I love that shot where he shows him the pictures. Oh, these are nice. Yeah. Like you could tell he's a humble doctor, right? You know, and he's just there. Like he's not a guy that's in it for the glory. He's really just trying to show up and help these kids. And by giving him like a piece, with the New York times and here's some pictures of you doing what you're doing. It's, it's really validating his work and it probably gives him like a recharge of like, yeah, I'm actually making an impact. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of like sad, sketchy kind of like how it, how it's all like planned out, but like you, you see how happy he is and you're like, Oh, he's so happy. And, and then you know, you watch the op unfold and you're just like, oh, man. That's, right. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, the doctor, the, the fact the doctor is such a genuinely good human being is going to set us yeah. up for the emotional uh, fallout that, you know, is going to happen uh, that we're going to talk about soon ish. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, also just to flag too that as a, you know, photojournalist, as your cover, like, He's just freely like snapping pictures left and right. He's getting all the information. Yeah. You know, and not having to like do it from like, you know, a mile away with a telephoto lens hiding right. under a hiding in a barrel or something. Yeah, and I liked uh when when Mir was in the meeting at back at Langley in the present time, because this is a what's still in flashback time, he mentions you know, him being a journalist worked out well. Uh, you know, he was already in Vietnam. So, like, being in this, like, war-torn situation wasn't really bad for him. And so him taking these pictures, he already had an eye for stuff. So, like, really worked out well. His his photos were, like, really good. So he could really pull off being a photojournalist in the middle of a battle. Now, once he's, once he's got the setup, uh, you know, Bishop calls Muir in. You know, he's got uh, he's got the information on where Salome is intending to stay while he's in Beirut. Uh, so that's when Muir comes in on the operation. And, uh, you know, he tells him Langley wants a backup. He wants uh, the Lebanese militia to also, like, have their own plan. Uh, yeah. You know, in case our plan fails. And our plan, again, by the way, we want the Salome, the target, to appear to die from natural causes. So what we're going to do to do that is use contact poison on the stethoscope. And apparently it's a, it's a type that like, it won't kill him for like a couple days. So there won't be, well, I think it was 12 hours. Okay. 12 hours. That's still good though. It's still, you know, enough time, enough distance to make it difficult to connect the doctor visit with the death. Right. Plus by points overall, that's, it's a good plan. I just want to talk about the recruitment of the doctor. Bishop brings in Muir and it's time for the pitch. And Muir basically says, your parents were died. You know, it looked like natural causes. Well, what if I told you that it was Salome who's responsible for the death? I want to give you an opportunity to do something about it. That would fit both of our interests. And, um, Uh, it's a really strong scene. And, you know, we had talked about like how humble this doctor is. Like he's just genuinely a good guy. And um, 
throwing this in his face after the New York Times piece, after all this stuff. It's, you know, his emotions are all over the place. And now he's seeing like his parents were probably murdered by his cousin, who he's like his personal doctor, who he's supposed to be trusted by or whatever. And him making the decision that, yes, he's going to, he's going to cooperate with the plan to murder Salome. And I, I really wanted to point this out because this is going to make my number two best trade craft was it's, it's just, it, it, it's a really sketchy way to do this because it's super manipulative, but this is, this is, I mean, the show is all about analyzing trade craft. Yeah. And this is, this is how you do it. Like, unfortunately, like, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. This this is exactly how you do it. And, dirty dirty I mean, deeds. Yeah, exactly. It's under and, cheap, right? You know, like, and, and it could have been a lie. It could have been falsified. We don't know. That's true. I mean, his parents dying weren't false, obviously, because it affected him. Right. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, but, you know, as to whether or not Salome was actually responsible, uh, that's something I would believe that Muir, the character, would be capable of false right i agree and we don't get any confirmation whatsoever so like you can even complain like you know like in movies like oh it just so happened but like we don't even really know if it just so happened or not it it was just both of his parents died together it's a little fishy uh from what was it like carbon dioxide poisoning or something Uh, carbon monoxide yeah i didn't catch it i think yeah i don't remember what it was but all of it was just kind of super fishy. So this whole story made a lot of sense. And uh, it made enough sense to convince the doctor who's taken his doctor oath to never take a life or to always oh, try and right. save a life. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if right. they still have the exact same. Uh, I don't know if the Hippocratic Oath is international necessarily, but that's a good point. I mean, just from this guy, we like I was saying, we know he's like a humble dude, like yeah. that he just wants to save people, like, just like you know, especially in American cinema, like a doctor doing something like that is a big deal, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and it's believable, and so that's that's why I definitely made my best tradecraft list because that was a hefty moment in the film cinematically, but it was also like real legit recruiting of an asset it's just ah it's so hard it's (laughs) it hurts so good it hurts so good it's well yeah because we know what's coming um (laughs) so the the problem here in my opinion that i wanted to flag was like okay so you got the plan you got the stethoscope plan and you have a backup plan that's fine have a backup plan as we're going to find out, though, there are downsides to running both versions of the plan at the same hour right. of the same day, minus right. spy points. <laughs> like, maybe if the something had happened with the doctor, then the next day you could run the motorcycle bomb or the van bomb into the hotel. Right. But wait. I, I'm not sure that it was planned at the same time of the same because from the interviews in the office, Mirror is like they was just supposed to be a backup plan. So I'm wondering if the militia has this piece of information. They're like, "Go fuck yourself. We're gonna bomb the fuck out of that building." 
Yeah, Bishop is the guy that immediately says, like, oh, we can't trust those guys. Those guys are fucking nuts. They're cowboys. <laughs> right. Um, and it's also true that, like, on the day that they're going to do this thing, like, a big, like, street war breaks out, which causes, like, a lot of complications for everyone. And maybe the Lebanese militia guys were just like, this is our chance. This is our chance right now during right. the confusion. Uh, we mm -hmm. should go now. These Americans, they don't know what the fuck they're doing. All you need is a bomb and a van. Right. <laughs> fucking stethoscope. What the fuck is that? The, and that's why it all goes fucking tits up. Is because the the Lebanese militia guys with their back... Basically, the backup plan arrives ahead of schedule. And yeah. even though Bishop has like moved heaven and earth trying to get the doctor into proper position uh what it ends up happening is getting the doctor killed like when yeah. when, the, when the bomb shows up you know it was the bombing and the bombing is definitely kind of the hair that broke the camel's back to have bishop walk you know because not only did we have Berlin where he lost an asset that he worked really hard for and it, like I'm sure as an agent like you treat your assets like your kids probably, you know, and to, to have to drop an asset like that is really hard. And now he's talking, now he's one. So this well, is where I'm going to bring Hold on, hold on. Again, let's right. think about the three flashbacks in order and how they function. Right. In the first, in the first one, you want me to kill an enemy general on the field of battle. Okay, uh -huh. cool. The second one, it's a little more dicey. It's you want me to betray a guy that, and then you tell me he was actually trying to betray you at the same time, looking at his own interests. It's like, it's like dodgy, right? Right. So the first situation, crystal clear. The second situation, maybe a little murky. Maybe there was some gray involved here, right? Right. Right. But this situation, it's gone to crystal clear on the other side of the spectrum. This right. doctor, like we talked about, you know, was a truly good man that right. didn't deserve to die. And so right. I think that's nicely done, like as an arc, you know, the way the three flashbacks work together of proceeding again through, like I said, like the honeymoon to the divorce yeah. between right. Bishop yeah. and Muir. Right, but even in the third flashback, that's why I really wanted to talk about Hadley, is he meets this woman that's generally trying to help kids. You know, uh, she's in a war-torn area. Um, when when Muir finds out, and by the way, Muir had been watching Bishop. When Muir finds out, he comes over because, you know, Bishop had been spending every night with her. You know, Muir, like, kind of sets up another meeting with them and starts like grilling Hadley about uh -huh. her past. And it turns out Hadley was a terrorist in London and can't go back home. And so this are, so like you were talking about each three of the three flashbacks being slowly leading up to the divorce. Well, the third flashback kind of has that same format where he meets this woman that he's like completely infatuated with. And then, um, you know, uh, Mir shows up and is like a total dick to her, 
And then it turns out, well, Mir might have been right. You should have done your fucking homework, right? And like, okay, it's kind of, all right, well, you know, there's a little gray there. But then kaboom, we just murdered a doctor who didn't deserve it, who was about to kill a man. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and so it just gets progressively worse this whole time. And um, uh, that's, that's when Bishop is just like, I'm, I'm out. I don't want to end up like you. And right, and yeah. and I think Bishop's plan is to just live with Hadley, who he's like just completely fallen head over heels for because he didn't do his homework first. Which yeah, which is kind of I mean the head over heels thing. I mean it's kind of it's kind of rushed through a little bit. I mean this yeah. movie is trying to do a lot of stuff, but like we just kind of assume we don't we don't really get like uh, some great. I mean when we find out how far he's willing to go for her right later in his story, like right. that's, that's really the major evidence that we get that this is like the love of his life. I don't, right. I don't, I don't think it was really like told their, their romance was, was kind of, I don't know, penciled in a little bit. Well, I mean, I don't think we needed a Hallmark channel romance film. You know, I, I, I think, the audience would have already understood, especially the timing of this film. You probably already have seen tons of spy films and it's assumed, okay, spies fall in love. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 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 You know, like, so I don't think we needed, you know, the, the whole story of them falling for each other. I think it's like you said, it, it's a step, it's established later that the, the lengths he would have gone for this woman, especially since, and I think him finding out the truth about her really is what made him fall for her. Now, wait, now let's talk about the truth about her, right? So I just want to back up and, and tackle uh, Elizabeth Hadley, like, like a little bit from, from the, from the jump and, right. and get her established because she's really important to the film. Absolutely. Um, so she's the, she was basically like just a waypoint along the way from Bishop landing in, you know, a way to get to the doctor. Yeah. And according to Muir's rules, like as soon as you're done with her, you're fucking done with her. (laughs) Right. You know, but apparently they fell in love Mm -hmm. and, you know, there's some kind of cool shit with that. Like, tell me your real name, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I don't know. It's very Hollywoody in my opinion. Right. Um, but so he was still attached to her. So like, even after he splits up with or but the thing is like, uh, Muir also was, was like kind of his spidey senses were tingling. Like you're paying way too much. You know, this asset is you're done. Like you should be walking away, but you're not, you're still right. like sleeping with her and stuff. And so he does his, homework and finds out that Hadley's got a past in Britain. She was involved with, again, a fictional, like, I don't know, a bombing of a hotel with a bunch of Chinese people in it or something. Supposedly she didn't know. That yeah. Wait, be wait, no. Yeah. They were like kind of a civil rights group type of thing. Or right. Yeah. Yeah. Them. That kind of thing. Yeah. And, and they bombed a Chinese building that was supposed to be empty and it wasn't. 
So like, she was like, I have to live with that, you know? Uh, and, and so she's been spending her life helping kids in like a war torn territory or area, I guess. Maybe as some kind of penance. Yeah. And so that, 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 that's why I think that's what really, like he was already kind of into her and now it's probably like, Oh, I see you have done this terrible thing and you have to live with it. I have done some terrible things and I have to live with it. And I see that you're making up for it. And I, I want to be a part of that. Right. But, um, but it doesn't work out like that. Right. Cause well, he, so, so yeah. So he, he first splits with Muir and then he goes back to, uh, you know, try to make, maybe make his peace uh, and make a new life with Hadley, but he just finds a Dear John note. And that's because Muir is fucking evil. Uh, sort of. <laughs> I mean, sort of. I wish, I wish they had let him be a little more evil in this right. movie. But, but yeah. he definitely did a, a, a horrible thing. This is this is my thought on the whole thing. When the first meeting with Hadley, he starts poking at her and grilling her to show, hey, you know what? You think you were marking her. She might have marked you. Maybe she thinks you have an asset. That's always the question, right? That's, who's that's play, always who's the question. Who's playing who? And often, it's a little bit of both. Right. And so when I think what happened when Bishop tells Muir, I'm done, Muir saw Bishop as too valuable to let go. Mm -hmm. And so what he does is he trades Elizabeth Hadley for an ambassador being held by the Chinese government for espionage and leaves a dear John note thinking uh, Bishop is going to be like, Oh, well, I lost my love. She doesn't want me. Fuck it. I'll stay in. And um, this is actually going to be my number one worst trade craft. Uh, we later, you know, the, the only, the only really kind of hiccup, I think, uh, Muir actually admits that he underestimates Bishop's love for Hadley. And and we're going to find out later because we're going to talk about... Yeah, he fucked up here. That's, he, that's yeah, for sure. I, yeah, and he admits I, it. And I think what he should have done is just been like, okay, fine, live your life, be happy, whatever. But I, what I think is he, as like a very seasoned agent, saw the talent within... Uh, bishop and was like we can't let this go we gotta do something and so I, I i like the chess playing that he pulled even though it was hella shady but i think it was a big fuck up because had he paid attention to bishop's reactions and bishop's uh decisions involving hadley that he should have picked up on like i think this guy actually is in love with her Let's cut it here and call that part one. Uh, we've tackled this one in chronological order, which I always think is the best approach for tradecraft analysis when we have movies that jump around in time. Uh, we have covered here all three of the flashbacks that set up the relationship between the two primary characters, those being, of course, Muir and Bishop. In part two, coming up next week, we're going to jump right into the movie's present day timeline, by which we mean 1991. And as always, we'll have our final verdict on the tradecraft portrayed by the film's characters. As always, the best way to make sure you don't miss out on that is to hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast app. Also, you can find updates on our Facebook page or website, spieslikeus.net. 
And please, if you can help us out and give us some feedback by rating us and leaving comments. We're always trying to improve the show, and your thoughts would be a big help. And We're you know what? To improve the sh- Go ahead. We are always trying to improve the show, and your thoughts would be a big help. And you know what? A big thing you could do, really easy, just get on iTunes, if that's where you're listening, give it a star rating. I don't even care if you give us five stars. Five if you think we deserve it, but uh, we need more ratings so that uh, we bump up and more people can find the show. Thanks. The preceding transmission sampled the songs Ice Cold by Audio Nautics, Enter the Party by Kevin McLeod, and sound effects from freesound.org. Attributions and links are found at spieslikeus.net. Editing by Todd Hostetler.